You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We're at it again, doing what we do. Uh, what do we do? What do we do? We, uh, I don't know. We, we just read through the Bible and talk about it. Sure, why not? At least on mic, you do a lot of research. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, this the podcast gives me an excuse to do a lot of research, so. Yeah. yeah it's instead of, what are you doing? And me saying, well, I'm reading again. I, I'm working. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So... Yeah, but we're in 2 Samuel again. Uh, We're on chapter 2. This is, what, our third week in 2 Samuel? Um, That sounds correct. Yeah. This is our third week. We have done two. Yeah, we're we're working kind of quickly through this, actually, because we're in chapter 2, and we're picking up in verses 12 and 13, and we, you know, Saul's died, David's lamented him, David's now the king of Judah, and Abner has made Saul's only remaining son king over the rest of Israel. And we kind of talked a little bit about um, Abner and his role and how he's kind of the de facto king in Israel because Ishbosheth really isn't, he doesn't do anything. And I, I read somewhere and I could not find the exact quote. Um, but basically, they said Ishbosheth was remembered for three things one, that he was made king that he was afraid of Abner and that he went to sleep with his fathers when he died. You know, so it was just, you know, he, he really didn't have a big uh, very, legacy. Yeah, very short resume, as it were. Yeah. So the the story, even though it's, you know, about Ishbosheth, it's really actually about Abner. And um, we're getting ready to move into an interesting story. I think our heading in my Bible is the Battle of Gibeon. Uh, And we get some insights into kind of the power structure, not only on Abner's side of the fence, but what's going on in David's camp. And so when we pick up in verses 12 and 13, we find that Abner and his men, they've been traveling from, uh, I always stumble over this, Manhanaim to Gibeon. And we we aren't told why. Again, the, the writer of Samuel, you don't need to know. He doesn't care to tell you. So why include it? Uh, and along the way, they meet up with Joab, and that's that's David's main general. We've met him before. And uh, again, we aren't even told why they're out. Now, one of the theories is that the parties are out trying to recruit support, or they're out raiding uh, villages, trying to get some food and you know resources for the armies. Another is that they're escorting their respective priests from their priestly cities, because they're both both camps inhabit a priestly city from you know one city to another because the priest would travel and help with different disputes between the different Levitical cities. And like I said, the writer just he doesn't care if you know or not. This is <laughs> you just need to pay attention to what he wants to tell you. And so the two armies or the two generals with their armies meet up at the pole of Gibeon. Now what's cool about this is we know exactly where this is. It was fully excavated between 1956 and 1960 by J.B. Pritchard. And it's a hand-carved water reservoir. And it's 37 feet in diameter, and it's 80 feet deep. 
So, you know, a lot of digging involved. And so if you want to, you can actually go and set next to this, this pool and be in the precise location where the, the generals, the leading warlords of these king's armies have this encounter. So you could you know, be in that spot, which I always like to think that would be fun to like, know exactly what was happening. And when they meet up, they, they take up places on either side of this pool. So you know, these two guys, they're 37 feet apart, and they're, they're talking. So verse 17, Abner says to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Now, this is kind of misleading because it's not just misleading in the English. It's misleading in the Hebrew. Uh, Abner says, let the young men play is kind of a, another translation. The, the word there is related to the word that we get the name Isaac. So laughter, amusement. Okay. It, it's nothing serious. It's a bit of a lark. He really isn't suggesting anything that you know you should take too seriously or so it seems and the rabbis actually claim because he presents this challenge as so frivolously it, you know such a frivolous event that this is why he has to die later okay. because he didn't take the lives of men seriously so in verses in verse 12 sorry verse 15 12 men from each side are chosen and the, the theory is that the 12 men are chosen to represent each of the tribes of Israel, so one for each tribe, and they're, they're supposed to compete, and we aren't told what this competition is. We're just supposed to understand what it is. This is a battle of champions, and the reasons why battles of champions were respected is because the God who ruled over that particular nation fought through the champion and proved that this was the one who was going to win. This way, a whole, you know, entire armies didn't have to die. Just as one or, you know, one or in this case, 12 guys had to die. So it seems like, and this is what most commentators agree, is that Abner and Joab have decided that they're going to hold this contest for the fate of Israel. And they're going to square off these 12 young men or 24, 12 from each uh, opposing side, and they're going to battle it out, and this is going to decide who's going to be king, Ishbosheth or David. Okay. Now, the problem is this, with this is generals don't have the right to do this. Right. Now, Abner, as de facto king, maybe. Joab, definitely not. And so there would have been some interesting questions about the credibility of such a, a standoff if there had been a winner. But we find out in verse 16, and each caught their opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. So these guys basically all walk up. They, all 24 of them grab their opponent's head with the, by the hair, probably, and jab a sword in their side, and all 24 of them fall down dead at the same time. So there's no winner. There, we just now have 24 dead men. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's very it, strange. Right. The, and you would think that in a battle of champions, or even if it was just a game, that they would have presented their best fighters. And so for 24 of their best fighters... To, to behave in a way that resulted in the, their own death, basically, and in a, the inability to defend themselves would have been completely unexpected. Mm -hmm. And so 
this is bigger than that. You know, it's not just a battle of champions going on here. And this isn't God, this is God saying this is the wrong way to go about it because God was being represented by both sides Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. Israel's his nation, Judah is his nation. Well, to me, it kind of, I mean, I don't know if there's a tie here, but it sounds like a tie back to David and Goliath, which I meant to say this time. Um, (laughs) But the, um, in that there's like this idea of calling out people to compete Mm -hmm. on behalf of everyone. Is Mm -hmm. that kind of what you're... That's exactly what's going on. Only this time, for whatever reason, they chose to send out 12 champions from either side. Same principle, larger number. Okay. And... This time, you know, instead of having a David or Goliath where there is this uneven match, which turns out to be David's greater than Goliath, we have equally matched opponents, so equally matched that none, none of them can none of them can escape alive. So now this Helketh um Hazarim, which is it's called the field of the sword's edge or the field of hostilities because of this. I thought that was interesting. The ESV doesn't translate it, they just give you a transliteration of how to... Uh, I have a footnote, at least. That's good. I probably do, too, honestly. <laughs> if I read the footnotes. Um, yeah, feel the sword edges is what mine says. Yeah, that's what mine has here. So, yay, they're working together. So, um, verse 17. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So, this battle of champions goes from... Uh, you know, this little skirmish to a full-on battle. And if we're paying careful attention, we'll realize that the writer is reminding us of a time in the past that we need to be paying attention to, and it's not David and Goliath. But he, he's going to use terminology that's going to take us right back to Judges 20, when we have our first civil war within Israel. And if you'll remember, at that point in time, it was the nation of Israel but the first tribe to go out against their enemy, and their enemy was Benjamin, was Judah. And this was right after the Levite and the concubine story. And they acquired the Ark of the Covenant, who's going to go forward, who should be first, and God mm. sends Judah. And of course, that winds up being a major catastrophe of a battle. And we're being brought back to that with similar language. Not only do we have the same opponents, but we've also got the danger of the same thing happening. Mm-hmm. What happens if David leads Judah out against Benjamin? Then this is where Judges becomes a warning to David and all the men. So if you remember back to Judges 20, you will also remember that only 600 of the tribe of Judah, of the tribe of Benjamin was left alive from the, those battles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, David started out with 600 men. So you have this really interesting reversal where David starts out with 600 men following him and he rises in power. And here's Benjamin who have also started with 600 men and rose to power. So you've got that, that kind of, uh, not reversal, but this parallel mm-hmm, mm-hmm. going on. So, um, we, we realize when we bring these, these parallels into play that this cannot be allowed to continue. There has to be an end to this kind of hostility. And especially when you realize who Abner's up against. So in verse 18, we're told that the three sons of Zariah were there. This is Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. Now these, we covered this before in 1 Samuel. These three guys 
They're David's nephew, nephews. Zariah was his sister. They're always called by the name of their mother, not their father. And so we think that possibly their father died when they were, when they were young. And that by calling them by their mother's name, it reinforces that, that connection to the royal house. Okay. So um, we, we don't know anything about him, really. So it's all conjecture. But it is really weird that they're known by their mother's name and not their father's name. So and if you'll remember, Abishai, he's the one in 1 Samuel 26 who went down with David when Saul was asleep in the middle of the camp. And Abner was there with them. And yeah. Abishai wanted to put the spear in Saul's head. Sure. So that's his brother. and. Asahel, Asahel, his name, Asahel, is simply described as being fast, and the rabbis make a lot out of the fact that there's no other description of him. We just know he's quick. Okay. Yeah, he's not a great warrior. He's not a strong man. He's not a gibor. He's just fast. So verses 19 and 20 through 21, I'm just going to paraphrase them. Basically, Asahel takes off after Abner. And while they're running, Abner yells back at Azahel and you know, says, is it you? And of course, he gets the affirmative. And Abner tries to discourage him from chasing after him two times. And he even suggests that Azahel should grab one of the young men and take their spoils, uh, or their, actually more of their weapons. And this is a really interesting dynamic going on here because Abner's actually offering Azahel a way out mm -hmm. that will allow him to save face. It would have been very easy for him to grab one of the young men and take the spoils of war from him and say, well, I was chasing him. I wasn't actually chasing Abner. Or, you know, I got distracted having to fight him, not Abner. And he could have made it look like Abner wasn't just outrunning him. But Abner is really concerned about the fact that Azahel's going to be humiliated if, if this chase continues because he doesn't want to fight him. You can almost, you, you, you don't encourage your mortal enemy to turn back. Right. And so the, this whole dynamic is strange. And we find out kind of a little more into Abner's uh, mindset in verse 22. And Abner said again to Azahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? And so Abner seems to be really concerned about how this is going to impact his relationship with Joab. And the, the rabbis say that this is a indication that they weren't vicious enemies, but rather they were two men who, who basically recognized that, that they had a valuable opponent. Mm -hmm. And so they, they also said that the two engaged in great theological debates, and this was the real nature of their warring against each other. I don't really see that in either character, but it's an interesting speculation that we will, you know, you, you got to do what you can do with the rabbi's teaching. So verse 23a, but he refused, was talking of Azahel at this point, therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out his back. So the spears had the business end, the, the sharp end, but mm. the other end they also were pointed on the on the butt of the shaft so that you could stab it in the ground and not mess up your your fighting end sure and this end was duller it wasn't as finely you know honed it, right. but it was still pretty lethal evidently mm -hmm. and the the point in the story isn't really so much that 
Abner struck Azahel with it and try, in an attempt to kill him, it's more the idea that Azahel was running so fast that when he, when Abner stuck out the spear to stop him, he, he impaled pushed himself. himself on through, yeah. Yeah, and I will say this. If you go through and look at this verse in um, other English translations, you're going to find that some of these actually have it translated that he was hit in the fifth rib and not the stomach. Okay. And the reason why it's interesting, this word is interesting is because we're going to find it used again uh, in a couple other places. The word for stomach in Hebrew is komesh, but the word for fifth part, not necessarily rib, just the fifth part is komesh. So whether it should be translated rib or stomach is kind of up to the translator's uh, understanding of what um, of what happened on. Uh, um, sorry, what happened after this. So 23b, and he fell there and died where he was, and all who came to the place where Azahel died stood still. So this death, whatever happened, how, whatever the, the actual mechanics of this were, was so gruesome that these men who were used to the brutal realities of war in their time, which was very hands-on, mm-hmm. they just stopped in their tracks. And I just put them into complete shock that this could happen. Right. So when you think about that, I mean, you kind of have to wonder exactly how bad was it. But again, the writer of Samuel doesn't want you to know that kind of graphic information. Yeah. yeah. And I, I have a really interesting example. I'm not going to say it on the air. But one of my mm-hmm. friends who was a police officer told me about once. So anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a few of those too. But uh, so. Verse 24 through 25, I'm just going to again summarize those. Joab and Abishai, they pursue Abner. And uh, I think it's very interesting. It says, when the sun was going down, literally the Hebrew there says, when the sun was entering. And I, I decided to pull this out because we see how the writer is still keeping those cultural understandings alive in his writing. Because when the sun was entering refers to when the sun is entering the netherworld. Right. right. It's, yeah. So it's not just the sun going down when we think of it sliding over the horizon and we know it's going to shine on the other side of the earth. They didn't have that conceptualization at all. The, the sun was just gone. And where was it gone to? Well, they couldn't see it. It must be the netherworld. And we can see that even at the time of the writing, not so much even at the time it was being written about, but when the book itself was written, that this ideology was still alive in Hebrew thought mm-hmm, and culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just because they get Jesus doesn't mean they're scientifically advanced. And, you know, even before they get Jesus, they, <laughs> they aren't scientifically advanced. And we need to remember that. So they get to the hill of uh, Amah, and it's, it's an unknown, lo- unknown location. And it means something along the lines of Mother City. And this is the only time we find this location. But Abner's men gather on the hilltop. Mm-hmm. And Joab stops and waits with his men. And we're kind of back in that first situation where they gathered around the pool, where we had both sides kind of facing off. Mm -hmm. And the question is, are they going to persist and attack each other again? Or are they going to remember what they should learn from the, the fact that this is so parallel to Judges 20? And so we know that the events of the morning didn't end uh, very well for either side. And so we as a reader, 
when we can sit and contemplate and think through, okay, this morning didn't go well. The last time Judah went up against Benjamin didn't go well. They need to stop now. But we got to wonder if these guys are going to do it. Do they have any ability to stop and process this in the heat of the moment? And fortunately, they do. Verse 26. And Abner called to Joab, "Shall Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And notice the, the words he uses there, their brothers. So what we need to bear in mind is Abner is Saul's cousin or uncle. There's some dispute over that. But he shared a lot of Saul's family history. So this means Abner's from the tribe of Benjamin. Abner's mother or grandmother were one of those 600 women that were taken from either Jabesh Gilead or from uh, Shiloh Mm -hmm, to be mm -hmm. wives. They grew up hearing the stories about the defeat and and the ruin of Benjamin and how they barely made it back as a tribe. This was personal for Abner. This was not an abstract idea, the idea that Judah could destroy Benjamin, that he grew up knowing this was a possibility. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things like that color how we look at our uh, environment and our culture and the things that um, the things that we should fear. And, you know, I can still remember when the Russians were the biggest enemy that the U.S. had ever faced. And, you know, that was something that took a long time for it to stop being that personific that character. I can't say it. Caricature? Yeah, uh, of Russians to, to kind of leave the American psyche. And it really took another enemy to come in to get us to, to stop thinking of Russians that way. And now we want, you know, and that was 9-11, that was Vietnam and all. So you kind of get this, this change. I mean, Vietnam kind of flows in with the Russian, American history. But anyway. Uh, yeah. Let's stick with the ancient yeah. history. <laughs> right. But, but the idea that when you grow up hearing stories about certain cultures your your whole life and you, you see where certain people and people groups were enemies of your grandparents or your parents or even your great-grandparents, there's a certain fear that is placed within the following generations. Mm-hmm. And so Abner and, and um, Saul would have grown up with this. And so for them to, to have this mindset and to fear Judah— would have been normal, but maybe not so much for Joab because Joab didn't grow up on the fearful side of things. He was one of the victors. They right. were the ones who survived. And so when Benjamin, oh, sorry, when Abner calls out and says, hey, you need to remember, we're your brothers. He's not just talking about what just happened with Joab's own brother. Mm-hmm. He's talking about what happened to them as a nation. And, you know, for, for Joab, that part of the history was a national history, but for Abner, it's a personal history. And so he's saying, we, we can't let this happen. We're already starting to see where brothers are going to die if we let this continue. Now, he's also reminding Joab of who, um, who he is. In pursuing his brothers, he is, he's not keeping up his end of the deal. If he hurts the people from the tribe of Benjamin, he's actually hurting David's chances of fulfilling the prophecy. Joab has to defend Benjamin just as much as he defends the other tribes, or David will never really be king, because you can't be king of Israel, not all of Israel, if another one of the tribes is wiped out. Yeah. So 
Abner is actually kind of doing to Joab what David did to Abner previously. And also, you know, he's bringing in that you've lost a brother and he's, he's being that good politician. And this is why I say Abner and David share some similarities and some sure. traits. Sure. So verse 27, and Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not be up, up the pursuit. Sorry. I don't even know what I have written there. As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until this morning. Ah, given up. Yep, that was, I I forgot the given in there. Uh, So, most of your English translations, they're going to read that way. If you start looking at the the Jewish translations and the commentators' uh, renderings of this verse, it's going to read more of, if you had said this this morning, if you'd spoken up this morning, it wouldn't have happened. It not spoken up this morning. If you hadn't challenged us to this duel mm-hmm. this morning, sure. none of this would have happened. So on one hand, from the English translations, it's almost like, well, good for you for speaking up and calling this to a halt right now. And if you go to the, the Jewish translations, it's like if you hadn't opened your big mouth to begin with. So, you know, there's a little bias in here about which way to translate it. Um e- either way. Everyone stops at this point, which gives us a little bit of hope because we need some hope at this point because the reality is the future of Israel is going to depend on how these two men conduct themselves. So verse 28, so Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. Now, this is a really important verse. It's going to come up again later, but I did notice um, Joab blows the trumpet two more times. So we have a total of three times that Joab is going to blow a trumpet. Uh, that's here, 2 Samuel 18, 16, 2 Samuel 20, 22. Now, the use of a trumpet is going to connect us right back with Ehud in the book of Judges. And he was one of the most brutal, violent judges. He was the one who assassinated Eglon. Also kind of connects us to Gideon's army. You know, we've got fewer men in number, but they're victorious over the Midianites. And with the blowing of the trumpets. But what I found to be really interesting about Joab's use of the trumpets, it's never, in a call, it's never a call to assembly, and it's never an advancement. It's always in retreat. The hmm. only time he ever uses the trumpet is for retreat. So I don't know if that has any significance, but it did stand out to me. Uh, maybe as we move deeper into the study of Joab, who I'm just looking at seriously, yeah. the first time we'll find something out. That is kind of interesting, though. Yeah. These are the things you like when you start really studying your Bible. It's like, okay, what questions do I need to ask? And you kind of, you start seeing things that, oh, I need to pick up on that thread and that thread. And yeah. So verse 29 through 32, again, summarizing because it is just action. Abner and his men, they return home during the night. Joab and his men, they return home during the night. Joab numbers his losses. Uh, he has lost 19 plus as a hell, so he's lost 20 men total. Abner's lost 360 men. So if we we're going to pick a winner, it's definitely Joab. He's got fewer losses, um, probably more, felt more in a smaller army because, you know, we're looking at just the tribe of Judah uh, versus the other 11 tribes of Israel. But Judah did seem to always have a pretty good fight fighting um, core going on with their men. There's, there's some debate. I know some commentators were talking about, well, Joab had his 600 men. 
I couldn't find anything that specifically said that it, he still only had 600 men at this point. We know that David had 600 men at Ziklag, uh, but he's now king over Judah. Sure. Yeah, so, he's enlarged his territory a little bit. Yeah, you would think. So there's some speculation on exactly how big the armies were, but the, the point is Judah is definitely the winner in this. And he probably was commanding a somewhat smaller force in the very least. So on the way home, when everybody's, you know, Abner's back to um, back home with Ishbosheth, Joab's going back to David. Well, Joab and Ashai, the Ashiah, they um, they take their brother's body back to Bethlehem and they they have him buried with Jesse, who's either his father or grandfather. There's still some debate on that. And this is the same uh, Jesse, the son of Obed, son of Ruth. So we're going okay. going right back there. This is this, a reminder. This is where David started was in Bethlehem. Sure. And, you know, it's a fitting place for, for his burial. So at daybreak, Joab and his army, they've made it back to Hebron. Uh, David's not been an active participant in this battle at all. As a matter of fact, he's only mentioned as a way of identifying Joab and his um, troops, you know, they're David's servants. Mm -hmm. So we don't have any interaction with David here whatsoever. Uh, the rabbis argue that if David had been present, there wouldn't have been any battle at all, okay. which is possible given the fact that, you know, we're looking at um, David's lament over Saul and Jonathan in the previous chapter. David doesn't seem to be in a big rush to do anything about Ishbosheth. So, Maybe not, but there's also a reason to think that there, it may, might not be entirely accurate to think that there wouldn't have been any conflict, because if we move into chapter 3, verse 1 says there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, mm -hmm. and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So the, the battle between Abner and Joab does not end the hostilities. So um, I think this is very plausible. Most commentators think that this the standoff between Joab and Abner might actually just kind of been an example of the kind of battles that were going on and to show that the two ruling houses, the, the fight was posing a definite threat to the existence of one of the tribes. And if you pose a threat to the existence of one tribe, you're threatening the existence of Israel. Right. So. Of course, the rabbis could not accept this because you can't have your heroes doing something awful. And so <clears throat> they proposed that the war was a basically a Bible trivia bowl <laughs> and that, <laughs> mm -hmm. that they were studying, uh, studying Torah in hopes of gaining the approval of the Torah scholars. <laughs> the, the rabbis really love to make everything about studying Torah. In a way that's, I mean, <laughs> I, I get that studying Torah, you know, it's pretty important. We still study the Bible today, and, and the Torah is a part of that, needs to be studied. Yeah. But, man, they just <laughs> yeah, try every... to make everything just a, like, point. It's just a little bit absurd at times. It really is. I mean, can, can you imagine, with the descriptions we have, Abner... Not to disparage the rabbis <laughs> on everything. They, there's some things that are pretty interesting, but... I'm sorry, that's some of the ways they try to shoehorn that, the Torah study, and I think this uh, sounds to me more like a way of manipula manipulating students. 
Right. If you want to be like these great generals, you need to have theological debates, and this is going to determine the future of our nation. <laughs> Which, you know, there's a little bit of truth in that. But yeah, it, it is. It's really about this, who can pose the best theological um, argument. Now, on some levels, this would actually might hold a little bit of truth in that if you pose a good theological argument and your elders and tribal leaders are theologically astute, then they're more likely to back you than if not. And you still need the approval of the leaders. I mean, it was the elders who called for a king to begin with. So if you can impress them again, maybe they'll endorse your kingship. Uh, and now it, it is kind of interesting, though. I mean, and I'm going to posit something here. I'm okay. going to actually ask a question. Uh-oh. Do the rabbis have anything about this being like a population battle? Like, because it says there's a war between David and Saul's house, and then it talks about all the kids David had. It, <laughs> there's... Is it is it possible that they were trying to make it about uh, who could have the most kids? We're going to get into that, actually, okay. <laughs> because there is something to it. And I'm trying to remember if I get into it here or in the future uh, list about the ki- David's kids. No, it's, it's uh, fine. It doesn't have to be here. I was just wondering if the rabbis <laughs> happen to try to make it like... Oh, yeah. Any, anything but an actual fight. Oh, yeah. Despite what we saw in the previous <laughs> chapter. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. And, and the reason why... The, one reason why I can kind of excuse them here is because chapter 2, verse 28 did say nor did they fight anymore. That, that's actually in the scripture. So then you turn around in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, and then the long war between. So again, you have to realize that when the writer of, of Samuel is talking and he uses these absolute statements, he isn't talking about a universal absolute. He was talking about that specific instance. So Joab mm-hmm. and Abner didn't fight anymore that night. Right. And so there evidently that, is... That's how I read it. Right, but unfortunately, some people, oh, well, they didn't find any more, so it's done, it's, it, it's over. But then you keep reading, and it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> so what is interesting is the distinction. David, the person, grows stronger and stronger. The house of Saul grows weaker and weaker. Ishbosheth is not even mentioned by name. You know, he's always presented as weak, and his strength relies on... The fact Saul was his father and Abner's his support. And there's never any idea that he, in and of himself as a single person, has any kind of influence, significance whatsoever. Right. Now, as you said, we're getting ready to move into the kids. What's interesting is it's like you have this battle between Joab and Abner, and then you've got uh, this little mention that there's wars in the land. And then in verse 2 through 5, you get this inserted paragraph that breaks from the main narrative. And you get a list of sons born to David while he rules in Hebron with their mothers. And so these are just the wives who are in Hebron. Uh, you got Amnon, who's born to Ahinoam. I cannot say her name. Uh, Kil- I, can't, I can't blame you. Kiliab, who's born to Abigail. Absalom, who's built, uh, born to Maacah. Adoniah, who's born to Hagrath. Sheftiah. I actually practice these, and I can say them just fine if I'm not on mic. I want you guys to know that. Uh, Shephatiah, who's born to Abital, and Ethrim, who's born to Elgla. The, so six sons to six wives and or concubines. We aren't really told uh, distinctly who's who. Okay. It's obviously not a complete list of the wives. We already know that David's been married off to Michael. We know that Bathsheba is uh, coming up. 
but neither of them are in Hebron with David at this time, and that's why they're not on the list. And later on, we're going to find out that David has 10 concubines who are also not included on this list. So this is where we start to get into the fun stuff, because we're starting to overlap with the information that we're going to find in Chronicles. And there's almost an identical list found in 1 Chronicles 3, verses 1 through 4. But then it continues to name the children and the wives that David has when he's in Jerusalem with more sons and more daughters. So that's 1 Chronicles 3, 5 through 9. And there's just minor, minor differences. Now, this is setting us up for what's getting ready to come in the next parts of the book. Amnon is going to become a central figure in chapter 13. He's the oldest. He's the heir apparent. Uh, He's the son of the first wife to have a son Mm -hmm. because Michael does not have kids. We also have Kiliab, who uh, Kiliab's never mentioned again, except for in that genealogy in 1 Chronicles 3. And in that genealogy in 1 Chronicles, he's either omitted or his name is changed to Daniel. Okay. And... You know, this isn't a huge problem because in the Old Testament, it's not uncommon for people to have two names. One is their proper name mm-hmm. and one's their descriptive name. Yep. And so um, one solution is that Daniel would be his proper name. And so in a book like Chronicles, where you're doing proper documentation, that's what you would use. Sure. First uh, Samuel, or, or the book of Samuel as a whole, seems to be more like it's written as a family letter to catch people up. And so they expected people to know details and they don't fill in a lot of things as far as family, family connections. Okay. Um, so this might be the reason why the nickname is used, but there's another story and I kind of like this. These are the fun stories that we do get from the rabbis. And it says that David's enemies said that uh, Daniel or Kiliab could not be David's son. Because he's born to Abigail and that this child is actually Nabal's son. Okay. And so God, as a blessing and grace to David and Daniel, made this kid look so much like David that no one could deny that he looks like his father. So his nickname is he is completely like his father. It Hmm. is what it means. So He's also mentioned uh, in the Talmud as one of the four men who never sinned. And so as such, he is highly honored, even though we only find him in genealogies. Okay. And just in case you're curious, the other three are Moses' father, Benjamin, and Jesse are considered to be four men in the Old Testament who never sinned. Hmm. So, yeah. (laughs) Now, who is that person again that we just Amnon? Uh, Kiliab. Kiliab. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I was like, I thought I'd remember more about Amnon later. Yeah, Amnon doesn't know. Get He's my names not... mixed up. Yeah, Amnon doesn't uh, get away so uh, easily. And but Amnon and Kiliab's mothers, Ahinoam and Abigail, are both from southern Judah, and so they provide David with those strong connections to the clans in those areas. We kind okay. of talked about that before. Now, Absalom or Absalom. Uh, he's the central figure in Second uh, Samuel 13 through 19. Uh, his mother is the daughter of the king of Geshur. So David had made raids against the Geshurites in 1 Samuel 27 and verse 8. So it's possible she's either a captive who was taken on one of his raids, mm-hmm. or she was given as a wife to seal a peace treaty so David would stop raiding the Geshurites. Sure. Either one completely plausible. 
uh, Gesher was as a as a territory was located immediately north of Ishbosheth's holdings, and so just being married to those people and married into those tribes that occupied that land put just a little bit of weight on Ishbosheth just in the fact that they were there. Mm -hmm. And so you would think that they would be loyal to David because a lot of times that was how you got loyalty from an opposing tribe. You know, send a family family member to live with them. Sure. Take one of theirs. And all of a sudden we have to get along or we might kill our loved ones. It's also interesting to note that Gesher is right between Herman and Bashan. And I'm not sure if that has any kind of bearing on Absalom's story, but we, we might find out something more as I do some digging. Okay. So Adoniah uh, was the oldest living son at the time of David's death. So he's going to come up again because everybody else has died off. You would try, think that he would understand that this is a family trait. You, the kids just keep dying. Um, and so by the time that David's dying, he's the, the next one up. And he actually gets himself into some trouble. And so we're going to get to talk a little bit about him. Now, his mother, we really don't know anything about her. The only time she's mentioned is she's this guy's mom. That's it. Now, not much of a legacy. Uh, who's that? Uh, Abadiah. Okay. Adoniah. Sorry. Uh, I was already getting set up in my mind to try to say Shephatiah without stumbling when you ask me that. So there's a lot of Shephatiahs in the Bible. Uh, none of them seem to be this guy. Uh, Rabbi Yehuda Hadnesi, the, the um, Judah the prince, the person that was credited for the formation of the Talmud, claims that his ancestry can be traced right back to Shephatiah. Again, Shephatiah's mother's only mentioned as this guy's mother. She's never mentioned outside of the uh, chronologies. Okay. Um, Ithrim is only mentioned here and in First Chronicles 3. So, again, not somebody who um, you hear much about. And I looked it up, and Egla, mm -hmm. his mom, uh -huh. means heifer. Yes. So, like, Eg I, was, I was thinking Eglon from Judges. But I do think it's also funny, because Leah means cow. Apparently, ancient Jews had something about <laughs> naming women after cattle. Well, you know, if that's the source of your wealth. Uh, fair enough. You know, it's kind of like naming a girl Ruby. I mean, or Pearl. So, okay. you know, that got to think, you know, totally different mindset because, you know, these cows would have been like up in your tent and you would have raised them from a baby and yeah, taken care of them. I, I mean, I guess I can see that, but it's just <laughs> it kind of funny because when I, when I read it and saw Egla, I was like, I should look that up because that, that sounds familiar. It, it really is. And, and so, yeah, and that's the thing. If you... If you start to notice these trends, you can start to put things together. Uh, it can also mean not only heifer, it can mean um, my calf, my lamb. Now, in our family, if we call you a heifer, it's normally not a compliment. Not a, not a good thing in the South here. <laughs> it, it can be a little endearing, but you've got to have the right relationship to support it. <laughs> so use at your own risk. But alternatively, it can mean a calf that would not accept a yoke. And so this caused the rabbis to speculate that this is actually a concealed reference to Michal or Michael. And it's in remembrance of that time when she did help David 
escape from Saul and threw off her father's yoke so that she could do that. Okay. Now, the problem with this is in 2 Samuel 6.23, plainly states she has no children. So we do have a, a handy solution, is that she had no children after the events of 2 Samuel 6. However, the alternative problem is that later on in 2 Samuel 21, when Saul's grandchildren are listed, there are no children listed from Macau. Okay. So, so, you know, this is the thing. With the Bible, you have to follow it all the way through. If you don't follow it all the way through, then you're going to come up with, you're going to make mistakes in what you assume. And I thought that was just a really good example. So here could be Macau, okay, maybe, but here's the reason why it could work, and here's the reason why not. We have to go through all the paces. Sure. You don't get to shortcut this. Um, there's no mention of Egla's country or her family. Um, we don't know anything about her other than her, what her name suggests and what the rabbis have invented for her. Now, you'll notice the first three wives and son appear to represent some kind of politically advantageous marriage for David with the, the geographic ties and the tribal connections that it mm. allows. Uh, the last three wives and sons, we really don't get that kind of um, implications from them being part of David's family. But what they do demonstrate is that David is growing stronger because having sons and having many wives means that you are being successful as a man in this culture. Sure. And so when you contrast this with Ishbosheth, then David really does look stronger because we never hear anything about any of Ishbosheth's wives and we don't have any sons for Ishbosheth. So this abundance of wives is actually defended by the rabbis because six isn't considered to be many wives. And in Deuteronomy 17, 17, the king is just admonished not to multiply many wives. And so when you've got David and then you compare him to Solomon, six doesn't seem like that many wives. I mean, right. perspective matters. And they actually defend this by saying, oh, David's just fulfilling the command to be fruitful and multiply. And so we're going to talk more about David's um, David's family in a I while. Mean, he could leave some work for someone else, right? Yeah, this is a load that needs to be <laughs> spread out. <laughs> I, I think maybe today we need to carefully and prayerfully consider whether that commandment may have been fulfilled already. So um, just a thought. So verse 6-8. Uh, while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So we got a very similar wording as verse 1. And we're, what the writer is signaling to us is we're putting aside that little section about the sons and we're moving back to the main, main narrative. Main narrative. So uh, 6b says, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So again, Abner, you know, he's doing what he's doing. He's establishing, establishing his political contacts. He's making sure that... Uh, people owe him favors. He is weeding out anyone who might oppose him. The The writer doesn't have to tell you what's going on because we've all seen the movies. We know how the mob works. We know how you do these things and the pol dirty political scandals. Uh, the writer expects humanity to pretty much remain constant. Mm. So um, now as we move forward, 
how we kind of interpret what happens is going to depend on whether you think Abner is basically a good Torah abiding boy or if you think he's a power hungry political mover and shaker. Well, I'm very curious about the next <laughs> couple lines because there seems to be a non sequitur in there. Just out of the blue. Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah. Verse seven. <laughs> Now, Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. Yep, Aya. And that's the whole sentence mm-hmm. in the ESV. It's, uh, now, in the JPS, we get a semicolon. Oh, we do? Yeah. Okay. Uh, instead of a full stop. But the... Um, and then it's like, and Ishbosheth... Ishbosheth? I, I haven't said his name out <laughs> yeah. loud. I just realized that. Ooh, it's tricky. Ishbosheth and Apt. <laughs> And Ishbosheth said to Abner, "Why have you gone into my father's concubine?" So it's like <laughs> this whole thing is woo out of the blue, just yeah, out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. So here we're calling back to that question you posed. Well, well, before we get to that, um, we should note that the scripture never clarifies whether this happens or not. It just says that Ishbosheth accuses Abner of it. Right. Now, but Abner seems a bit defensive. He does. But the question is, is he being defensive because he did it or because he served under crazy Saul, who decided that all of his loyal followers were out to kill him and started throwing spears at people? So you kind of see where some of Abner's own personal baggage might come into play. Or he could actually be guilty. And, you know, if Ishbosheth is carrying on his father's legacy of paranoia and striking out against his most loyal followers, then Abner is going to be the first guy on the list. So um, you might see why people might be hesitant to uphold Ishbosheth as king. However, if it's true, Abner's making a huge political move here. Yeah. And so now... A lot of this I'm kind of basing loosely on Bergerman, so don't hate me for it, but don't blame him for all of it either. So you might want to get his book to compare. But concubines were a symbol of the king's power and authority, which makes sense when you realize that Israel's living in a culture that still reveres and honors fertility culture and those fertility cults. Sure. And so a king's sexual prowess and fertility were viewed as a direct reflection of his authority and his might, not just here as a king, but also in the spiritual world. So a king with many wives and concubines and children, you know, there's a reason and a you know, tangible sign that you should believe in his ability to affect that same kind of fertility within the spiritual world, which then flows out on the people. Okay. And so it wasn't just the ability to have children. It, it, it's his ability to procure and to protect and provide for the women that he claimed. So remember the, the first act, the first demonstration of a God's, and I'm using little g there, God's mm. power recorded by the Bible was their ability to take women. Okay. And so if a king can take women, he is proving that he truly is operating as a representative of the gods. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. No, I, uh, not a great I, idea, but interesting. <laughs> right. It, it's not something that, that Israel or God ever presents positively in the Bible, but it is definitely a part of the culture. And, you know, if, if you can take 
if some random guy can come take the king's woman, then that means that king has lost the god's favor. So mm-hmm. who are you going to back? And so for Abner, who's been, you know, making all of his buddies within Ishbosheth's courts and garnering all the favor, giving all the rules, making sure everything runs smoothly, everybody's turning to him when there's a problem, is now sleeping with Saul's concubine. He's basically said, I am the one who operates with the God's powers, at least in the eyes of the people. Mm -hmm. And so this is really dicey for Ishbosheth because not only is Ishbosheth pretty much a non-entity in his own life, he is not even part of a dynastic rule at this point. I mean, Saul only, I mean, Saul was king. But in order to be truly king, your son has to to take the throne. Well, Ishbosheth hasn't even been on the throne for two years at this point. We don't even know if there's going to be a, a dynasty for Saul, a legacy for Saul. And to have for, for sorry for Ishbosheth to have his position challenged like this, it is revealing exactly what he was supposed to do. Because if he'd played by the rules of Israel, this is the situation he's in. If he'd played by the rules of Israel, he would have accepted that David was the next king. He should have followed Jonathan's lead, stepped aside and said, hey, brother, I'm going to support you. He did not do that. And we have no reason to think that Ishbosheth didn't know David or that they couldn't have been friends. I mean, if Jonathan and David were able to hang out in the castle or the palace or wherever he was at that time, you got to think Ishbosheth was at least around somewhat. Now, if he'd played with by the rules of the prevailing culture, not Israel, not what God says, then he would have taken his father's concubines for himself because this was standard procedure for that sure. culture. And in some cultures, that even included your own mom if she happened to be part of the king's harem and still alive at the time you took over. So when he didn't do either of those things, when he didn't align himself with the God of Israel and he didn't align himself with the uh, ancient Near Eastern gods, what he's doing is he's proving himself to be completely impotent. And I mean that both sexually and as a ruler, because in the, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, there is no distinction between what happens on the physical mundane realm and mm-hmm. what's happening in the spiritual realm. They both interplay and they're both interconnected and interdependent on each other. Mm-hmm. If Ishbosheth had actually been a powerful man who had the ability to provide fruitfulness and abundance for his kingdom, he would have taken these women for himself. And the fact that he didn't was basically him saying, him saying, I'm not man enough to do the job. Right. And so when Abner does it, this is Abner saying, I can do what your king can't. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I, we don't think about it. We, 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 don't even, we don't even think that it could be a possibility that this is how people think because we are so far removed and we're so far removed from that idea because God said this isn't how you live. And he starts it out with a Torah. By the way, you don't take your father's wives. And so God's the one who set that up as a standard that now we as human beings go, you know, that's kind of gross. And the thing is, we wouldn't have gotten there if it hadn't been through the revelation of the Torah. And so 
we've already seen that that these these ancient Near Eastern ideas were are very much a part of the Israelite culture that they haven't completely weeded them out at this point. I mean, we talked about some, I think, in the last episode. You know, Michael's got the teraphim. Saul went to the medium. We just talked about the the sun was entering or going into the netherworld, how that's still part of the vocabulary. And so Ishbosheth essentially lost the support of faithful good Israelites by mm-hmm. not supporting David. And for those who were living in Israel and still ascribed to these other practices from the other cultures, he'd shown himself to be powerless there. Right. And so he hasn't, he refused to pick a side. And because he refused to pick a side, neither side picked him. No one's backing him. And this is the reason why he can't get anything done. So the response to that, verse eight, like you said, Abner's a little def- defensive. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, "Am I a dog's head of Judah?" Nobody knows where this particular insult came from. Dogs were unclean. Why, particularly a dog's head? And uh, a dog's head of Judah, particular. It, there's some confusion. We just know that Abner's upset. Uh, you know, he could have been a sailor. Sailors come up with interesting ways to insult people when they're really <laughs> mad. Do they really? Um, yeah, had some experience with that one. Uh, so to this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends, and I've not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. So Abner never denies the charges. That's, that's one reason why I think it did happen. He never says, I didn't do it. He, he just says, I've loved everybody. And maybe I loved her too. But I've loved everybody. And you owe me because I have taken such good care of your, your family's house. And the problem is the only one who's not going to get any of this love, this chesed, which is what Abner's saying he's shown to Saul's house, mm-hmm. is going to be Ishbosheth. And now Ishbosheth has received it in that Abner didn't turn him over to David. Well, David wasn't looking for him. Right. David was never seeking him out. And Abner's kind of just rubbing it in his face that any safety or security that you think you might have felt, it's because. I gave it to you, and it can stop at any time. Mm-hmm. In fact, in verse 9, God do so to Abner, and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. So it's, I made you king, I can make him a king. Abner not only, it, you know, he isn't worried about what's going to happen to Ishbosheth because no big deal. This king's broken, I'll get a better one. I've already shown I can do it. And suddenly, Abner not only believes that David should be king, he believes he's the person who's going to make it happen. And you know, I think we've, we all have seen the Abner character in movies, in books, in mm-hmm. TV shows. So, oh, Did you run into notes there? I did. We, I almost timed it. Uh, did it right. But uh, yeah. So... Uh, verse 10. Good news you had the other ones. I know. To transfer to the kingdom, this is verse 10, uh, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set the throne of David over Israel, over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. So um, it makes you wonder what Abner's game is. 
because he stood beside Ishbosheth right up to the point he feels like Ishbosheth has humiliated him. Mm. And the truth is, Ishbosheth just, just stood up for him like he should have. He should have said, you're wrong to do this. You shouldn't be able to take my father's concubines. Right. These women should have been protected and lived out their life in a lot of peace. And if Ishbosheth had left it unchallenged, then basically it would have been his sign to Abner that do whatever you want. Uh, I'm here, but you just do whatever you want. But now Abner's so mad, he's going to get, go get David. And now I see him as a little bit of a snake in the grass, honestly, because he, he is so willing to turn so quickly on this guy that he's made king. But the, the rabbis love him. As a matter of fact, their title for him, he's the Lion of the Torah. Hmm. I mean, he is... The things they say about him, I, 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 I'm just, I'm shocked because he, he's... What I read here and what I read in their writings seems like they're talking about two different people. Right. And what they're saying is this confrontation where... Number one, they claim that it's, you know, uh, Ishbosheth's paranoia that led to it, that Abner would have never done such, something so disrespectful. Right. Even though he never denies it. And so this, is the, this confrontation is actually the signal, hey, Ishbosheth's been on the throne long enough. The prophecy's been fulfilled. Time's to switch sides. This is how it works. You know, so he's, he's actually ready to move forward with God's plan now that he's been with uh, Ishbosheth for two years. And so... I don't really buy it. There's some indication that David does. And the, the writer kind of concludes the, this encounter with one explanatory sentence. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he was afraid. And so if there's ever anything you want to you don't want to hear about your king, is that, that he's, he's afraid. afraid. Yeah. And so Abner, I mean, he, he wastes absolutely no time in making good on his word. And we're going to talk about his trip to go see David and how he completely just sells out Ishbosheth piece by piece and wants to just hand everything over to David. And how crazy is this that, that Saul's most loyal general becomes the one who basically just gives David the kingdom on a silver platter? And so, anyway. All right. Well, it seems like an interesting cliffhanger to end on. Um, so, yeah. If anyone has anything to add to that, I'm definitely going to be doing some extra reading ahead. Because I, I didn't get a chance to read through it, but a couple times this go around. But um, anyway. We've got, yeah. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of fast-paced stuff moving forward. Because... Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Well, if you want to be part of that conversation, ravencreeksc.com or ravencreeksc on all the social media, ravencreeksc at gmail.com. Send us the letter. Um, you know, we, a letter. <laughs> what are those? What are those? <laughs> um, well, email works best because you don't have to print and send it in a little package. So I find it's a stamp. <laughs> I mean, there's tubes in the earth that send things around. Is that yeah, how that's the internet it, that's works? It, yeah. <laughs> Gophers with little packets in their teeth. Okay. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. That being said, um, I think we're done recording for the weekend. <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to get a little food sleepy here. So, yeah. 
Anyway, come back and join us. It's always a good time. <laughs> we'll see you later. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.